0: Whoa, all right. Hello. What do we even say for the introduction? Happening now it is Wednesday, May the 29th, 2019. What do I even say? I'm shocked that it works. Um You're, you're, you're listening to the EdTech Situation Room, episode 136. You thought maybe this was the first time we've ever gone live, but here we are. I am Wes Fryer coming to you from Oklahoma City, where I am delighted that Our Google Hangout on air appears to have started. We've been having some bizarre difficulties last week and this week, and we're, as we did last week, ready to to go to Zoom. But the amazing Dr. Knifer, who is able to heal all things, especially Google Chrome related, he is the Chrome healer, has fixed us tonight. So, Jason, how are you? And I guess you are not coming to us. From lovely Santa Fe tonight.
1: No, I am back at home in Missoula, Montana. And um, I have to say, if nothing else, if you're listening to our podcast and you're someone that believes that nerdy people don't experience technical problems, let me assure you that Wes and I have had both of our lifetime shares of them and... Uh, Tonight, trying to get YouTube um, on air to work for us was certainly a challenge, but um, I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus. I'm also the NCC Tech Savvy Administrator in residence, and I love to talk about tech, which, by the way, that's what this whole podcast is about. We take this week's technology news, and this week is a little light on on the protein, you might say, for for technology news, but uh, this is historically a low week in in tech releases because of the the holiday week, but still plenty of interesting things to talk about. And if you want to see the links that we're talking about or dig a little more deeply into the stuff that we're reading, you can go to our website. Website com and find out more. So, Wes, I feel like we need to talk fast before YouTube fails on us again. So, where would you like to start in this evening's news?
0: Uh, well, um, let's take a personal article. We've got a couple under the security tab, and I actually made our local news uh, this. This week, actually, today. So, this is from the Oklahoma City Free Press on May 29th. The title is School Fights Fear as Part of Defense Against Network Intrusions. And shout out to Brett Dickerson, who is the Oklahoma City Free Press founder and editor. Uh, He came out last week to interview me at our school. And part of this was some news that we've had recently about the Oklahoma city public schools having a ransomware attack. And he's been looking for somebody to talk uh, to about cybersecurity. So it just came out this afternoon and I don't think I sound like a complete idiot, which is always good when you are being interviewed by the press and it, um, you know, includes a number of things we've talked about on the show from uh you know using a password manager for unique complex passwords, uh multi-factor authentication, um, network segmentation and I'm not trying to pretend like we have all of these things figured out. In fact, that's probably uh, one of the things that that people are hesitant to talk about because you don't, you know, you don't want people to oh look, somebody thinks they know everything about cybersecurity. Let's let's make them the next target. Um so anyway it is is not something that I would would say that any anyone is probably doing perfectly, but it is a journey, and we are certainly focusing a lot on the education of our users and again this week uh because we finished up classes last Friday, actually, we had yeah last class classes and then there were finals, but anyway, graduation is Saturday, and so uh on Friday morning, we'll have an opportunity to have all faculty and staff gathered together. And yes, one of the first things I will talk about in my little section is going to be internet safety. So glad to have that out there. And again, you know, cautiously hope that that's going to help some folks. You know, sometimes it takes a while to hear things multiple times, like, yeah, password manager. I know I've heard about that, but I haven't done that yet. In fact, I met with a faculty member today who is like, yeah, I think I'm going to do that this summer. You know, so some of these things you just – you have to hear multiple times before you you know actually change behavior. So, Dr. Neifer, have you been interviewed by local press, and how did that fare? Uh, or maybe you've just had that happen so many times, you, you they've all just blurred together because you're you're constantly on the front page of the, the Missoulian or whatever you guys have got up there.
1: Uh, well, the, the times I've been on the front page of a newspaper are, are relatively few. I, the one I, I do remember is the... Um, the after the uh, Bush v. Gore uh, election in two thousand, they interviewed a couple of local history teachers because they wanted to know how we were covering the chaos of of the the recount. And um, and I was a second or third year teacher at that point. And it's pretty funny. It's a little disconcerting when you are in front of a classroom and I'm pointing toward a television that has an electoral college map on it, uh, which was what I was using to to project PowerPoint. At that point, was a computer to television adapter, but um, every time I'd go to point to the map, they would take pictures. So it's like, click, 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 click as my finger, you know, move towards the, 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 television. But, um, I think that it, it's really interesting to me that I know that, that the article that you're referring to Wes, uh, that some big bad thing happened in the Oklahoma city school district. Is that correct?
0: Correct. And I do not have knowledge of that and was not speaking directly right. to that, but that was precipitating, you know, journalists wanting to find someone in our local area who would speak to cybersecurity and talk about it. And so that was, you know, the catalyst for this conversation, which really is about preventative kinds of things right. that we're doing to try and educate users, try to harden our network and, you know, try to moving things to the cloud and having backups and all those sorts of things which you try to do in a multi-layered approach to security.
1: Right, absolutely. So are there either those other two articles you want to talk about? There's a couple of interesting things in in, in other security news this week. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So I continue to listen on a weekly basis, general you know, basically to um, This Week in Tech, which can be a really long podcast. I mean, that's the main show that Leo Laporte does. Uh, but but in last week's, not this past Sunday, because it's a Sunday show, but but the week before that. Um, I heard about this article. So this was from the New York Times, and this is on May 13th, 2019. It's called WhatsApp Rushes to Fix Security Flaw Exposed in Hacking of Lawyers Phone. And so, uh, we've talked a little bit about some of these, these hacks. I mean, there's the Pegasus malware that this Israeli, you know, team is using, but there were a whole series of, of hacks that were released by this NSO group, if I'm quoting this right. And basically this stuff came from leaks from the NSA. So the the, uh, NSA of the United States, you know, had these different zero-day vulnerabilities, I guess, ways to get into people's phones that were not patched, people didn't know about. And so this lawyer was representing some people who were contending that nation states, uh, in this case, um, was it Mexico? Let me look into here. Anyway, uh, the the lawyer was defending folks who were being targeted by people who had these kinds of attacks. And oh, and okay, that's the thing. These are in the wild now, right? So it's not just that that Pegasus stuff is is, is something supposedly developed by that company. And countries like Mexico and other places that have bought this, Saudi Arabia, um, you know, are using those to target. But these things are now out in the wild. And so anyway there were some some journalists who were being targeted and this lawyer was representing them and he was getting some of the same kinds of specific, suspicious behavior on his phone and he was he was getting a call from WhatsApp but then it was being later deleted and here's the thing that just blows my mind about this Up to this point, we are familiar with, you know, phishing attacks and and hacks where you basically have to do something. You're being, you know, people are attempting to trick you by sending you a link, trying to get you to to click. and, And by clicking that, you know, you initiate something that basically lets them own your phone, lets them own your laptop. But, you know, you have to be tricked and click to do something. Now, a few weeks ago, there's a company called Know Before, and they have some different webinars. They had demonstrated where simply uh, having an email in a preview pane on your phone would share the hash to your account password, and then they would be able to put that into basically a supercomputer to you know, run multiple iterations on the hash and be able to get your password, which that would seem kind of scary. And let's you know, I don't want to call this show, hey, let's get scared. We're all, you know, we're all doomed. But this article in The New York Times talks about this, this uh, vulnerability as they simply call your phone on WhatsApp, you don't have to respond to the call or click a text message. And they also would later delete the phone call from your call log so that you would not see that it'd come in. So this lawyer was attuned because he was protecting – yeah, representing a Saudi dissident in Canada, a a citizen from uh, Qatar, a group of Mexican journalists and activists. And so he'd heard about these things, and then he saw these calls come in, but then he went in later, and they were deleted. Well, this is that vulnerability. So that that was the mind-blowing thing that in this case – And as somebody on the This Week in Tech show pointed out, well, you did have to install a third party software program, which was called WhatsApp, you know, but basically this vulnerability, which I guess has since been patched, didn't require the person to even click anything. So what a dream for hackers to simply be able to send a call to somebody's device. And then at that point you own it and you're even going to delete the evidence that, you know, you've, you've placed the call later. So that just kind of blew my mind. Um, so I, I guess, you know, the lessons here are, um, you know, be wary, um, and and we always need to be aware and careful of what we're installing and what we're allowing. So this those two cases that I'm describing are the only ones that I've seen that are almost a no action at all by by the user and, you know, your, your device is hacked. Now, on the good side, these are very targeted attacks. These aren't the kind of things like robocalls that are just being sent out to thousands and thousands of people per day. Um, but I had not ever heard of anything. Have you heard of that kind of, uh, of a hack before where... You know, I call your phone, and suddenly I own your phone.
1: Right? No, I've not, and that that's that seems extraordinary, and it's also super interesting that the kind of nature of the targeted hack. But uh, that said, one of the things that I've had the opportunity, maybe in italics, the opportunity to do in the last couple of years is that I helped a friend uh, who had gotten hacked uh, through a, a a phishing attack um, that that he. Uh, clicked on a, a link that had a fake Gmail page and, and he logged in and you know, the the only reason why the only clue we had of what had happened was that he said that he was getting notifications on his phone of email that would just disappear. Like the notification was there for a split second and then would disappear. And then he'd go into his email and there was no new emails. So he didn't really understand what the situation was. And as it turns out, the, uh, the malware um, had, or the, the hacker, I guess, probably a better way of putting it, um, had gotten to his Gmail account, um, uh, emailed out a similar attack from him to other users that were on his contact list, right, which is pretty standard strategy, but then also... Um, uh, set it to where there 's an automatic filter to take all new email and put it right in the trash and so you wouldn't like if someone emailed you back and said, Hey, I think you're hacked, you wouldn't see that and it would take you a while to kind of dig through that and I think that that notion that you know that these are incredibly sophisticated and clever actors that are engaged in this type of behavior you know I think increases the ante of of what 's really at risk here, so I found that story to be pretty interesting too. And, um, it just, you know, that this is not a a rogue group of accidental thugs. These are very methodical, smart, and savvy people that are engaged in these attacks.
0: Here's, and and so there's another lesson learned, right? About keeping our devices patched, right? The the WannaCry and a lot of these vulnerabilities that have been widespread have happened because there were network administrators and other IT managers that were not keeping their, their systems updated. So, hopefully, and this is a challenge right now with Windows 10 and, and the difficulty that they've had, but hopefully by keeping your system patched and keeping it updated, you're going to be safe. Here's not an article, but a related story. Um, this is a screenshot that, uh, or a picture of a screen that one of our users sent me today, and she was in a complete panic. She had a siren going off on her computer. She's on a Mac. It says, Windows protected your PC. Call this number. Um I think I probably will use this without naming names um, as I, again, talk with our faculty because, you know, this was really scary for her. It was really alarming, and it turns out it was some kind of malware extension that was in Chrome that, you know, and, and when she called, I couldn't go over there right away, and I was like, close the computer, stop, you know, shut it down. But the links to which people are going yeah. uh, to try to compromise our devices – You know, someone said to me today, they're just, they're ready to just not, you know, use their computer at all, just throw it away. And anyway, that's, that's not the answer. But, uh, we've, you know, we need to, need to hopefully have people that we trust that we can call in situations like that. And, and if your, if your computer is, you think, compromised, you need to close the screen, shut it down. If it doesn't go off, you hold the power button down. I think no matter what computer it is, if you hold the power button down long enough, it will it will shut down or restart. I mean it should should shut down. So, anyway, um yeah, those were those were interesting. There was one other security article in here which was kind of a bizarro one. This was from Engadget on May 27th. Auction for a laptop full of malware closes at $1.2 million. This is weird. So, it's kind of like sort of art because this person had put I think um, WannaCry and let's see the uh, Black Energy, which was the, the malware that shut down the Ukraine's power grid and you know several other things, uh, ransomwares. And you know this is air gap, so it's not on Wi-Fi or connected to the network. It's like this weird piece of digital art, which is going to remind us of the dangers of ransomware and a virus. And then it was auctioned off for 1.2, you know, well actually, sorry, 1.345 million dollars, dubbed "The Persistence of Chaos." The Samsung NC10 contained six viruses that caused an estimated 95 billion dollars in damage. I'm sure there's a lot of IT geeks looking at that going, I could have made that, you know, I mean, why?
1: <laughs> I pulled that one out of a classroom today.
0: That's right. Exactly. I, I shut that one down last week. So Jason, will you, when you were in Albuquerque, I'm sure you were looking at a lot of fine Southwestern art. Was yes. there some, some good hack devices that were also among the, the pottery and the Coco and the other, you know, fine Southwestern art pieces that you guys were, were examining?
1: Sadly, no computer, although I did get an opportunity last year around this time to visit the Computer History Museum in Silicon Valley. And strangely, they didn't have a copy of a, an art laptop either. It does remind me, though, that, I mean, there have been times when I've, I have purposefully taken virtual machines that I'll install Windows or Linux on in a virtual window and, you know, test a piece of, of, of what it suspected malware to see what it does. and usually does pretty nasty stuff, um, but I probably have an image or two in from my history as a, a computer technician slash you know home home geek uh, that that uh, approached that in regard to its dangerousness. But the picture in that article is pretty funny because I have seen things very similar to that before. Um, The notion of, uh, uh, you know, full screen the thing you talked about with the the user that ran into the thing with the weird siren. I've I've also dealt with those calls as well. And, you know, it's you need to be secure and mindful of it, but also know that you can be very careful and make one bad decision and it would have a long term impact on you.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, where else should we go? Let us reassure you, if you're coming to us live or listening Wherever you happen to be in time and space, we, we do not read articles and talk about them all the time that are just, you know, scary, but sometimes we do. So. Where else should we go tonight, Jason?
1: Sure. Uh, Let's go through some Chrome, uh, Chromebook and Chrome OS news. So first and foremost, a great article from uh, yesterday's Chrome Unboxed, where uh, Robbie Payne, the founder of that site, uh, and the kind of head podcaster there, actually it's not even him that's talking about it, it's the other writer on the site, um, uh, sends out a warning that I think is a good warning for both consumers and uh, people that are purchasing technology in districts, check the expiration date on Chromebooks, because... As it turns out, uh, Chromebooks are, are supported from anywhere between five and six and a half years by Google for regular security and feature updates. But once that date is gone, then it will no longer receive those security updates. As it turns out, there are a lot of people that would sell refurbished Chromebooks or old new stock Chromebooks for incredible discount prices. I think people are used to this notion of Chromebooks being super cheap, and so, you know, wouldn't bat an eye for a $99, $79 Chromebook, but you should get the model numbers and go to Google's end of support policy page and find out when that Chromebook will no longer be receiving updates. Now, to be super clear, you can continue to use a Chromebook that is no longer being updated. It's functional still. Um, but, uh, a good example of this. I have a 2013, uh, uh, Chromebook Pixel. It was the original. Uh, generation of Google's foray into making hardware in this particular market. It's still a beautiful device, great high definition screen, the best keyboard I've used on a laptop before, great uh, a trackpad, not super great battery life. We have that still kicking around the office because uh, we use it to test things on Chromebooks but it's no longer being updated anymore. So the interface is starting to look a little dated because it's not receiving the regular tweaks. It's also not receiving security updates. So if you're in a Position to buy Chromebooks, and someone calls you and says, Have I got a deal for you? Be careful that you're not buying things that are essentially going to be only updated for a year or two before they are eliminated um, as possibilities.
0: And let's take this opportunity, too, to remind everyone (laughs) this is something I heard years and years ago at the beginning of the one to one computing craze getting a device. Getting the cheapest device that can be left on the loading dock of your school district or organization should not be the primary consideration when it comes to what device are you going to adopt. You need to look at the return on investment. You need to look at how long these devices are going to be in use and are going to be supported. You need to look functionally at what your users want to do. What do they need to do? Do they need to run software? Do they need to, you know, do things beyond what the web can do? The web can do all kinds of things. And if you've been listening to our show for a while, you know that both Jason and I are pretty, you know, hardcore Google fans. We love the Google Suite. We love the kinds of things that Google is being able to empower us to do today. However, you know, we've both used a variety of different, you know, computers and operating systems. I'm, you know, using a Mac laptop tonight and an iPad and... There's there's a lot of good reasons why you know a Chrome device does not meet all of my needs today, and so I think that's just an important reminder as well uh, to not just not just think it's price price price, that does matter of course, um, and Chrome is phenomenal. It, it really is powerful, but that's really good advice, Jason. And, and I need to look at you know we have a number of Chromebook carts. We have over ten Chromebook carts in our inventory now across all our divisions. And um, I, I'm going to do that tomorrow because <clears throat> I've got some dates and we're in the process of auditing, but yeah, I, I think we probably have at least one cart that may be beyond end of life. And, and that's going to present some issues in terms of whether we're going to continue to use it in that end of life status, or, you know, we're going to move on and get those devices refreshed. Sure.
1: Um, and then a couple other interesting pieces of Chrome news. I think that last week we did not talk about this uh, particular article. If I'm wrong, then I guess we'll repeat the news. But this is also from Chrome Unbox. so this was covered widely in, in the tech media. Um, Adobe Premiere Rush landed on Android last week, which is a video editing app on the Android platform. And I've not had the opportunity to play with it yet. I haven't downloaded it, but I've not played with it uh, yet. But apparently it has an enormously functional and clever video uh, uh, editing um, interface on Android that is getting a lot of compliments from tech reviewers. And more importantly the app itself will be available on the Android App Store for Chromebook um, in the relatively near future. And so if you're managing Chromebooks, um, all modern Chromebooks come with the ability to install Android apps, and this might be an opportunity to add a localized program that does what seems to be a pretty efficient job of editing video on a mobile platform, but then on the Chromebook. So very exciting news in Chrome world, especially... If You're doing as Wes does in his uh, school. Roll them out uh, in carts for functional purposes. Wes, are you at all? Does that? Uh, <laughs> I think I ask you this every six months. Does that tempt you into going Chromebook only?
0: Well, I <laughs> I am shifting roles as I've talked about on the show, and so I'm uh, kind of grappling with that. It's it's been great to be the technology director for four years, but uh, my uh, my budget b- budgetary authority is going to be dramatically reduced here in the next 30 days. So um, I think we're going to have good conversations in the next year about especially our middle school and what direction we will go with one to one. I think in some cases, people have assumed Chrome, since we're so invested in that platform with carts is what we naturally need to do. But Ideally, what, what we hopefully can do is have conversations, again, about what teachers need to do, what they want to do, what students need and want to do, uh, about curriculum, um, just, you know, about the whole package. And then also what students are going to do as they move up out of middle school into high school um, and the kinds of things. We we have, and I'm very excited about this, license the Adobe suite uh, f- and, and are giving access to all of our faculty staff as well as the um, – Students who are going to be in our fine arts courses, you know, that have graphic design and do video and things like that, and, and also in clubs. And um, anyway, those things should give us pause to consider, you know, if you want to do these kind of things, you're not going to be able to do them on Chrome. But I was interested, and I've done, you mentioned what was it called? Adobe, what was that that special uh, app?
1: Uh, Adobe Premiere Rush.
0: Yeah, um, but it's it's for the for Android, so you have to have a Chromebook that'll run Android in order to do that. That's correct. And I know those are not quite in some people's opinions ready for mainstream. I mean, there are some just depends on what kind of Chromebook you're using and and how well that's going to work. So, um, I've been impressed by how many different apps are available inside the creative cloud. And if, if you're not aware, um, if you can cross the threshold of licensing like more than ten uh, users in your educational organization, you might as well pay for the site license, which gives you five hundred licenses for for twenty five hundred dollars that 's the the price point there, which is phenomenal but of course, Adobe wants you know students to be using all their tools and love their tools and then you know go out into the non k twelve environment and purchase said tools and and continue to pay them for them so i 've been impressed by how many different app uh, programs are available both to download for your windows or mac os computer and then there's also a number for um for ios i haven't really explored as much what's available for android. so i think it's intriguing but as is the case with basically any type of software today we need to compare what can we do with free tools what do we do for you know with paid tools and um, you know what is our purpose and i don't think we should just assume automatically you know we have to pay because you know, if you're a fan of the FOSS, the free and open source software movement, and even just as a Google fan, right? There's tremendous things that can be done on the Google platform, and those could be creative things as well, not just productivity, you know, straight word processing, spreadsheet, and presentation. But there's a lot to do with drawing and with other kinds of creative possibilities. So, Jason, you, how many weeks now have you been Chrome only? Because you're, you're Pixel only, and has this been over a month now?
1: Oh well yeah, well over a month. And then I'm using a Chrome a Chromebox at work now. So I probably load up. I've got a Microsoft laptop at work. I've got a an older Mac laptop at work. At home I'm pretty much rich Chrome. I've got a desktop uh uh PC at home that I use mostly to occasionally gain, but the bottom line is is that I'm all in on the platform, and I, I have to say I've never really been happier. There's not a lot of fuss that's required. Um, everything pretty much just works. And other than I do a remote desktop session to get in to do the Adobe stuff that you're talking about, because the stuff I'm doing is usually pretty industrial, like vector editing in um, uh, uh uh, Adobe forgot the name of the Adobe product that does vector editing. It's uh, Illustrator. Illustrator, thank you. Adobe Illustrator, uh, vector editing, which vector editing web wise and on on mobile platforms is pretty terrible right now. Um, but other than that you know, it's what I do. And, uh, in fact, one more time, I used to carry a Chromebook along with some other laptop when I traveled because I didn't quite trust the platform, but the last at least four trips I've been on have just been Chromebook only. And, um, and I was, you know, gone for, for seven days, uh, to New Mexico with my wife. I worked two of those days from that location and was able to do everything I need to do in my job without, without exception.
0: A quick Chromebook anecdote, which I don't know if I've shared on the show. You know, when I went to Egypt November before last, that was when I went Android. And, and this was a lot to do with some paranoia over, you know, possibly going through customs and having, you know, data copied over and whatever. Well, I I was Chromebook only. I chose not to take uh, any kind of, uh, of actually either iPad or um, – I mean, this is my first trip I think I made without a single Apple device. So I had my um, – my Android phone and then I took uh my, my Dell Mini Eleven Chromebook that that we you know had personally and um it was good that I brought a VGA adapter because the the school where we were in Cairo um and and our school is, is that way in some classrooms still I'll you know admit uh we've got VGA connections. So it was great to have an HDMI to VGA adapter. Um but it was it was great. I mean I was able to do my presentations from Google Slides, I was able to do everything that I needed to do. So Um, I want to encourage everybody. If if you haven't, and I salute you, Jason, for your experimentation. And then you know you're living this life, right? Because it's different when it's not just your. I'm going to try this a little bit. It's your daily driver. You're doing everything. You know that's you. You've jumped into the deep end. So I think as technology leaders, obviously you can't try everything. You've got to discern what is it that I'm going to take the time to to really give a try. But but Chrome is one of those platforms that we need to not just pay attention to a little bit, but I think really, you know, I don't don't have the right analogy, but it's like, what, what is it when you're going to eat the sandwich, but you know, you're, you're going to, you're going to live it, right. You're going to fully live it. You're not going to just watch it. You're not going to just virtually say, Oh, that looks interesting, you know, but you're going to live it. And so, um, you, what you said, I think on the show, maybe last week or the week before, thinking about devices, thinking about what our kids have and how our, our students, you know, probably in most cases in a one-to-one environment, I think this is a conversation we had, might maybe benefit from having the same device, the teacher, and vice versa. Um, anyway, it's just, yeah, it, it as always, the show has my, my head spinning and thinking about a lot of different things, sure. and the fact that, you know, you're able to go Chrome only. Um, certainly gives you a lot more perspective to talk about these kinds of things. And when we're talking security, like, let there, I don't think there's a better platform. Mac OS is fantastic. Okay. But, the assumption that my MacBook is going to be immune from any kind of social engineering or any kind of malware. No, um, it, it is not. There's still, still stuff out there and there's stuff that can, you know, trick Chrome as well. Have you received Jason, any malware or, or bad, you know, software on your Chrome device since you have gone all Chrome?
1: I have not. Uh, I, I have had to deal with a couple of, uh, um, plugins and extensions that that I questioned a little bit. Um, they were ones that were recommended to me by others and did a specific purpose. You know, when I was looking to find replacements for things I'd be leaving behind on you know the other uh, more traditional operating systems, uh, Mac OS and Windows. But other than that, I've I've had a really good run here. And so, uh, yeah, I you know it's and by the way the term you're looking for that my understanding in development it's called dogfooding. Yes. It's that <laughs> you know you. Using your own using your own product to make sure that it makes sense and I, I mean there have been times when I've worked with with uh, tech directors that had you know very fast fancy gaming rigs uh, you know in their office and then you know their individual teachers were using five or six year old uh, desktops uh, students maybe even longer I do think that you know, spending some time at the very least, um, you know, I wouldn't take away from you the opportunity to have a good computer in your office because I have one, too in mine. but the bottom line is, is that you do need to be using the platforms that your students and teachers use to see what that experience looks like. And if it's too old for you to be a power user on it, it's probably also too old to be productive in, in classrooms or with students.
0: And one more thought on that. I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I took a day off of work and was at our church with a consultant that's worked there for years and- I learned that we've got some staff running with, like, I think 10 and 11-year-old systems. And from a security standpoint, again, we really need to look at that and, you know, just how, how long is too long for a refresh, right? We want to get a lot of years out of our devices. But... That's not an infinite, you can use this forever until it, you know, stops functioning. I bet the Mac SE30 that I have in my garage right now would boot up, okay? If I could find, what is that, ADB, if I could find an ADB mouse, which, you know, to my wife's chagrin, I'm sure I have in one of my boxes that I've, you know, the stuff I've not thrown away. It'll probably boot up, but that does not mean that we should be using it today, and so... Anyway, it's uh, it's eye-opening to to see these different – a lot of these issues that we face in schools with, you know, networks and things like that that need to be brought up to a new generation and, um, you know, segmented and made more secure, um, endpoints are a big part of that equation as well. And so I think that's an important decision for organizations to make, you know, is how old is too old with devices and how are we investing to make sure that, you right. know, the, the weak link is is not, you know <laughs> – so fragile that it's gonna it's gonna be busted because it's a you know ten year old machine that it doesn't re- receive security updates anymore. Hey, but what about the prices of these Chromebooks? you have got a Forbes article there. I'll segue to.
1: Sure, yeah. So and it goes along with the earlier discussion we had about um, uh, the prices of devices, but uh, uh, and the expiration date issue. But one other thing to know is that there is a lot of observation in the Chrome OS commentary community that. Chromebook prices are likely to trend upward in, in the coming uh, years. And I know that part of the Chrome OS environment is that it, it's, a, it's a price uh, uh, argument, right? That the value proposition is that because Chrome OS itself is so snappy on modest hardware, that you get away with buying and using modest hardware. But as things are becoming uh, at least common, if not non-negotiables, which include touchscreens, which add uh, a certain amount of... Expense to the bottom line. Um, higher definition screens are becoming necessary. Uh, multiple types of ports. Uh, chances are the device has a USB-C port on it for charging and for other means, but a lot of users report like having access to older USB uh, ports for that purpose as well, but do expect this thing to trend upward uh, uh, over time. Now, that said, something Wes and I have talked about a couple of times on this podcast is that one of the things I think that makes Chroma. Chrome OS a reality for a power user like myself is that I don't think you can skimp on the the um, stats for the individual laptops. Those um, uh, uh, not even high-end Chromebooks, I think what I would term is maybe like a media market that have i3 or i5 chips in them, 8 gigabytes of RAM, and then... Uh, At minimum, a 1080p screen, touch screen is not as important to me as a user, although I know it's important to some, but I think that has to be a minimum, right? And using that as a power user piece is important.
0: Are you playing that audio?
1: No. What what are you hearing?
0: I'm hearing a video. This is really weird, dude. (laughs) Uh... What the heck? Okay, it's just a video. Sorry. It's it's my geek of the week video that started to play in a Chrome oh. window. So All right. Yeah, wow. Really, guys, we we've done this before. It's not the first rodeo. Just feeling like no. a noob here. Sorry.
1: Okay, so with that in mind, expect Chrome uh, uh, Chrome devices to become more expensive over time. So, Wes, where else should we go out into the technology universe this week? Okay,
0: well, let's just do a very positive one, and we'll do a shout-out to Peggy George. Uh, you put a, a series of copyright articles, which you may want to touch on. The last one I, I put in from DIY Photography, April 20th. Uh, NASA makes their entire media library publicly accessible and copyright free. Now, the irony here is I thought that it was already copyright free. Yeah. Um, because, you know, this is NASA. This is owned by the people, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, anyway, it's uh, interesting that, um, I, I mean, I was surprised at that, at that distinction, but fantastic that, uh, you know, we have access, as we do, to just phenomenal resources, and that's that makes for a great part of a copyright conversation that you can have with your students talking about intellectual property, talking about fair use, uh, talking about public domain, and things like that. So, yay, NASA. What else do we have on the copyright front this week, Jason?
1: Well, this article is pretty interesting, and it actually caused more of an issue that I think we can kind of parlay into a different discussion in a moment. But um, the Houston Chronicle reported on May 24th that a – jury has awarded a small publishing company in Texas $9.2 million from the Houston Independent School District because um, uh, one high school there, a principal in that building, decided to suggest to a teacher that she make copies of a study guide for something referred to as an end of course, which I think is a Texas... Uh, exit exam uh, right. in in the high schools there. But basically, a, a publishing company made uh, study guides for students in these end-of-course exams, and they could only afford one of them, uh, apparently, like one per teacher. And the uh, principal suggested to the teacher that she should go ahead and just copy all of them off, and then um, uh, uh, copy all of them off, and then distribute them to... Um, to students, and uh, it turned into a big to-do because some of them ended up being posted on the web, others of them were uh, sent somehow to other schools uh, as part of this process. Uh, Some teachers copied them straight up, others of them uh, uh, actually covered the copyright notices and the uh, demand that the materials not be copied, which shows at least some intent to violate those restrictions, and after a prolonged fight... Um, the publisher of the study guides prevailed at the tune of $9.2 million. So I, I guess where I'd start with this is that I, I've taught copyright formally as part of my work as an adjunct at the University of Montana. Um, I believe I made a statement that was something like, I think you need to be extremely mindful of copyright, and you should follow the law the best you can as part of this process. But I've not heard of districts that have been called to task on this issue. Well, I can't say that anymore because um you know, I do think this is an egregious example of 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 copyright violation, but it, at to the tune of 9.2 million that's extraordinary. So, Wes, in your long history in in this arena, have you heard of something so dramatic as this particular uh uh fine for this district?
0: I don't think so. I mean, I know that we've got some well publicized situations with, you know, uh, you know, PTO, you know, fundraiser selling access to come watch this movie and, you know, some, some of those kind of things around Disney and the use of Disney copyrighted yep. materials. Yep. Uh, you know, when money is exchanged, exchanging hands or money is involved, that is, um, oftentimes a, a flag because, you know, fair use is something that sometimes Teachers can think, well, I can do anything. I'm a teacher. Uh, And that is not the case. Right. Uh, There's, you know, four different things you have to take into consideration for fair use. So this is, I think, a pretty extraordinary case. It's a good one to point to. The, the thing I, uh, was, was considering as, as you were reading and describing this is, you know, the quotations from the email quote, I'm okay with violating it though, dot, 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 (laughs) LOL. The teacher wrote in an email. And I've, I've shared on the show that, as a director of technology, now I have been privy—which is I don't know if it's the right word—but I have I've been involved in some lawsuits involving um, litigants who have had you know the judge has ordered us as a school to provide every email that we have from the past you know five years in our archive where this person was addressed this term was stated, you know, something was, you know, any, you, you think of the query, right? I want a query and, and here's the nicknames for the student or whatever. I mean, there, it was a lot of, of emails and, and your system, whether it's Google or exchange or whatever, you know, can generate these files that are then ingested into the lawyer systems and they're used in litigation. Be really, really careful what yep. you put in email. Remember that anything you write in an email message Email is a unique platform. It is different than Google Docs. It's different than other kinds of cloud storage, classroom, blah, blah, blah. We don't have systems today that I know of that allow a judge and lawyers to so readily contact an organization and say, give me every example of this as as they do in email. So anyway, it was one of my thoughts, and certainly the behavior itself is the, the main thing, let's respect copyright and no, you shouldn't take something that's being sold and simply duplicate it, denying that in that income to, you know, that copyright owner. But also it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad those things were documented because I think this this does appear by all counts to have been an egregious violation of copyright. And so it's, it's good that it was brought to light, but it also reminds me of how important it is to be careful what you write. And I think that's another message that we probably don't share enough with staff and right. with teachers is, you know, yes, there's a lot of things that we might say in passing. There's things we might joke about, et cetera, et cetera. If you haven't been as close to a lawsuit, you might not think about it as, as thoroughly as I think some of us do in, in, in IT. If you put it in an email message, you know, think about that, you know, being on the on the front page of the newspaper. Think about that being, you know, something that a law, a a courtroom full of folks, uh, you know, a, a judge, a panel of jurists is able to all read and see and, you know, how that's going to shine on you as well as your organization.
1: Absolutely. And then a little bit about the aftermath of this. This this article being released uh, bounced all over Twitter last week, and there was a lot of interesting discussions about this. I did want to note that probably the counterbalance here, uh, Heather Lister, who is a uh, ed tech person um, like like Wes and I, um, she, um, uh, I should I should say uh, Wes and me to be grammatically correct, but uh, Heather um, noticed a lot of the the. Um, uh, kind of back and forth regarding copyright. And and I do think that there's a tendency to overreact here a little bit because of, of how little is really known about the fair use provisions in copyright. I think it, it it's less useful in a digital age because a lot of the, the fair use restrictions are put in place under the notion that it's not easy to, to reproduce or share or store information in the long term uh, when these were created as opposed to now. But she did want to remind everyone that you sh- you need to know something about this, and you shouldn't panic. Um, if you believe you have a good case and know the the law for using something in a fair use uh, way, then you should feel free to continue to do so. I guess the reason why I would talk about this uh, uh, at least from a, a a basic standpoint is that. Uh, If you are a classroom teacher, and you yourself don't feel versed in this, or maybe you don't know if you should feel versed in this, right? Like, you you may have some assumptions about, you know, restrictions in education that, that may or may not exist, but... I would strongly suggest that you connect with your, um, your, your librarian, who's usually an expert on this in your building, and if they're not getting requests related to this, ask your librarian to put on trainings related to this, because oftentimes their, their expertise goes well beyond what you would need to be able to figure out a good way to do those pieces in the classroom. Um, I
0: love this piece that she wrote because this is calling out the 1986 guidelines for fair use in educational media, which was a well-intentioned document but which dramatically overstated the restrictions that are imposed upon not only educators but students and anyone in light of U.S. copyright law. It vastly underestimates what fair use allows us to do. And this is a very well-written article, and I would definitely encourage people uh, to check this out. Um, the One of the things I need to be rewriting and republishing in the not-too-distant future is my playing with media book, and there's a, a chapter on copyright. And it's really an important thing that – perhaps is kind of glossed over and it might just be left to, you know, one little discussion in one class period in some required technology classes that people take. It's something that really should be, I mean, it's vitally important, right? Intellectual property f- is very, very high right now and the reasons for why we're having, I think, a trade war with China and why we're, you know, upset at, at the behavior of companies like Huawei and others in terms of how they have failed to respect you know, copyright and, and, and patents and things like that. Uh, It's a big deal. And we're living in this service economy. We're living in this world where ideas and code um, are sort of the, the new oil. I mean, I don't know. Data is the new oil, I guess, but anyway, it's important stuff and we should make sure that we are conversant, knowledgeable about it as not only technology leaders, but just educators of, of any stripe um because you know how much are we taking from the web are we modeling good respect for intellectual property with our students on a daily basis we create slideshows we create you know content i've got teachers very very concerned in fact in one case i think uh, i think paranoid beyond reasonable um about materials being taken and then resold on teachers pay teachers that's a real issue right and the fact that you can't tell unless you purchase the content you know what the actual content includes and so these are big issues, and they're going to continue to be, and it behooves us all to be better educated. So kudos for Heather Lister and for you also highlighting this article.
1: Um, one, one last note about that, Wes. I'm glad you mentioned Teachers Pay Teachers because I, I actually put another link in the article today, uh, or I'm sorry, in our show notes today, uh, that that is kind of a segue away from this but also involves teacher Pay Teachers. So as it turns out um that this debate over the Houston ISD and, and the copyright fine that they received sparked an interesting debate about teachers pay teachers, which is starting to become, I would I would argue, well known as a place where you can go buy someone else's intellectual property. And uh it's interesting because I, I actually have a couple of, of of informal business plans I've written about maybe selling some materials uh, handcrafted materials and teachers pay teachers, and that that may or may not come to fruition, but the bottom line is is that i 've experienced the same frustration related to that, and that I have purchased items in the past. Um, uh, in context of my day job, looking to get a head start on on ways to do particular activities or to buy certain resources, and as it turns out, I you know, would download the materials, and they're full of copyrighted materials from textbooks in particular. But apparently, of the you know many people that that do great work in in releasing classroom materials uh, themselves, um. Uh, uh, for free on on classroom websites or on on many of the, the teacher resource sharing websites that exist. Um, that it's pretty common for those to be repurposed and then uploaded to Teachers Pay Teachers, usually with kind of a, a glossy redo to provide it, you know, maybe something a little more, um, at least initially attractive from a design standpoint, but it's a very real issue uh, that exists on that platform, and I'll be honest that I have connected with Teacher Pay Teacher uh, people. Uh, the last one was at ISTE, I think it was two years ago, about this particular issue, and they had a, you know, Decent line, and that we work hard. Contact support, yada yada. But the reason why I want to mention that is because the other article I have in regards to copyright this week is a great Verge article from the other day about how YouTubers and record labels are fighting, and the record labels are winning. And the reason why I mention this is because YouTube has less copyright problems because they have an internal system that scans all videos looking for potentially infringing content and oftentimes the resolution to this is something that can be like mutually palatable so you are a popular YouTuber and you use let's say a video clip that's copyrighted or an audio clip that's copyrighted you know the YouTube content identification system will identify that go to the creator and say something like well you can continue to use this but they want to split profits from this video 50-50 as an example or some other uh, uh, deal related to that but this Verge article talks about how that content protection engine um, tends to be a little overzealous and sometimes will identify years old videos that may have something that's potentially infringing um, and then want, you know, uh, hadn't identified to this point, then suddenly wants to make something a beef, or it will identify something that's really not a violation of copyright and fair use. Protections would would keep in, it would stay in play there. So the bottom line is that um, uh, you know we have an automated system, which a lot of people think that the teachers pay teachers should implement. It's not a panacea either. So I know Wes, you have a long history of putting content up on YouTube. Have you ever gotten a a, a, a claim takedown before?
0: Yes, I have had some strikes. In fact, one of my more memorable ones. I made a video, gosh, probably when I was working for AT&T, maybe 2007-ish. Um, yeah, because I was inspired by David Warlick in his keynote for the, the 2006 K-12 online conference. I think that was when he made this analogy to learning on the rails. And so I went up to, to Edmond, which is north of Oklahoma City, and recorded this video. But I had a small little clip of the Superman theme. And so because I had just like, seriously, 5 or 10 seconds of the Superman theme. I got a strike and I had to file a um a petition or whatever it was a a protest for the strike and and I I made a fair use defense, you know, that I was using that as a small portion and this was for education and this was for um This was a transformative work, and anyway, I successfully defended that. But if you have three strikes on your channel, uh, you can have your whole channel taken down. In fact, that's one of the reasons why, you know, Jason and I uh, have downloaded versions of all of our shows. They're hosted on on Amazon, on Amazon S3, and um, actually because of my daughter, who's a YouTuber and, you know – a lot of kids, of course, they are fans of lots of people. Uh, I mean, she has made me aware, and I think my son as well, of some YouTubers that have been harassed and, and had false takedown claims and had their channels suspended and, and really had to fight. So if you're not aware of it, there's a big fight going on right now between, as Jason points out in this article, creators and YouTube. And it's really not favoring the small-time creators uh, I don't know if I mentioned it, but I think it might have been my geek of the week last week was the Verodiceum. Yeah, it was the video. My, my video went viral. Here's why. It's a phenomenal explanation of how the algorithms of YouTube are being changed, you know, by Google and the impact that's it's ha- it's having on creators. And so that combined with these copyright and fair use issues, because this is challenging, right? There's not a single copyright law in the entire world. And yet YouTube is this global platform. And so they're basically trying to be arbiters of these disputes over copyright where the laws vary. And as you might not be surprised when it comes to litigation and things like that, you know, sometimes they tend to err on the side of being conservative, um, which in the case of like music artists and folks who are teaching guitar can mean like even simple guitar licks that people will play on their channel (laughs) you know, get them a strike. And so like, how do you learn to play the guitar if you can't copy things that other people have written and made? It's it's very convoluted and challenging. So I think that, you know, these are great discussions to have with students, right? Sometimes we shy away from you know, conversations that aren't exactly clear. And back to the, the Heather Lister, you know, reference to this 1986 guidelines for fair use in educational media. They try to create these bright line rules, just say, hey guys, copyright's really easy. Fair use is really easy. Do this, you know, never more than 30 seconds, never more than 15 pages or 15% or whatever their different rules were. Well, that is not how the law is written. That's not how the real world is. And so I think it's a great topic to grapple with with students. Your students, if they're teenagers now, are watching YouTube, okay, hello, you know, alarm, you know, uh, notice to to everybody, you know, YouTube is the second most popular search engine and it's wildly popular with kids of all ages. And so the, the creators that they are watching more than likely are talking some of them about these issues. And these might be things that your students already have some knowledge and some strong opinions about. So, at least it could be a great writing prompt, you know, but a good, a good topic of discussion and something that can highlight some really important issues that touch on these big themes of intellectual property, respecting people's rights. Students themselves, we as, as teachers have intellectual property rights as we author materials. We need to know what those are. We need to respect the rights of others. We need to make sure that we're following, following the law and then hopefully, you know, empowering others to, to become creators and not to just shy away from all this by saying, gosh, it's so, it's so confusing and scary. I'm not going to do any of it. No, there's, there's tremendous value and possibility in creating and sharing content today. Um, And it's also potentially lucrative, right? Have we ever before had this global platform like Amazon where you can write an ebook and put that in global circulation and reach so many, so many people so affordably? No, that's, that's never happened before. It's really a big deal, but you need to respect copyright and understand it, especially as you're going to publish things that might involve the transaction of money. So,
1: right. Absolutely. Well, Wes, I think we're coming towards the the top of our podcast hour here. Is there any of the topics you want to get in this week?
0: Uh, Maybe just really quickly, the Apple ones. Uh, Apple came out with a new iPod Touch, which kind of surprised people. The chip's a little old. I put in the 9 to 5 Mac article from May 28th. Um, Apple releases new iPod Touch featuring A10 Fusion chip, uh, 256 gig option. I don't know, kind of interesting. Why, why do you think Apple did this? Will there be an iPod Touch added to the knife or arsenal in the next few weeks?
1: Well, I will say that that I am more likely to buy a Touch than an iPhone. And in fact, uh, an iPod Touch was my first kind of foray into this place because Montana didn't have iPhones for, for the first two or three years that they existed. Uh, I used to joke that uh, 80% of African countries had access to iPhones and Montana did not. So, uh, sad that that was the case. So I bought an iPod touch because I wanted to be part of the revolution, uh, which led to my first iPhone. But yeah, I was surprised to find them that they were available too. the 256 gigabyte one, which is I think $400 and the chip is older, but a super powerful chip. So I'm assuming this would be a nice, smooth experience with a relatively low resolution screen, which means it should get a great battery life on it. Yeah, it's tempting. I mean, I, I did see uh, some of the coverage today talked about how uh, Apple is starting to, you know, highlight the fact that iOS is the, the, the most used game platform on Earth, um, and more more games are played on iOS than any other platform. So the fact that they want to maybe aim this at, I'm assuming, you know, younger uh kids maybe from a game playing standpoint. I'm not surprisingly glad. I do think they would probably make a ton of money though if they released it like a, you know, I guess we're we're working on a 20 year anniversary of the iPod here pretty quick. A 20 year anniversary, you know, monochrome screen, music only but updated with, you know, lightning or USB-C, if you release the original iPod, I think that would be something uh, that would garner a lot of interest amongst the masses.
0: Bring back the click wheel, baby. i yeah, still yeah, got mine.
1: Absolutely. So. I do, too, actually. And uh, it still has music on it. So One more
0: fast one before Geeks of the Week. Uh, you dropped this in from The Verge. Distorted Nancy Pelosi videos show platforms aren't ready to fight dirty campaign tricks. Wow. Um, A lot here. We've talked about media literacy. We've talked about deep fakes, the ways that, you know, just like Photoshop has allowed for the manipulation of photos for a long time, videos, both with selective editing, but also through, you know, outright, um, you know, misrepresentation. I mean, it's crazy, the kinds of things that can be made. So your comments on this latest political slash technology phenomenon that has gone viral.
1: tons of tons of articles on this, and I think a lot of the commentary has been about how the different platforms treated this. Facebook and, um, I want to say, no, YouTube took it down. I think uh, uh, Twitter kept it up. Uh, Warnings, labels, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, I do think that uh, we are in a scary time from the standpoint that the technology is faster than our response, and so... I don't know what to do about this either. Right. It's not ban the platforms because I think these platforms are just have too many net goods, um, to just, you know, eliminate them. Plus, you know, how do you, how do you stuff Pandora's box back in? Right. Like you can't, can't do it, but, um, uh, obviously something is required here. I don't know what it is.
0: Here's a thought. And this is the last, last thought we can do Geeks of the Week. I was listening to, I think, um, an NPR interview, or maybe no, it was a, yeah, it was it was NPR. I think it was, I, I listened on my, you know, Hey G, what's the news? It cycles through Reuters and uh, NPR techno- technology. I was interview with this candidate from New York who's, and I should know his name. Uh, he's calling for the universal basic income and uh, some other things. Uh, he was talking about demographics and older folks and, you know, folks who are 65 and older, if they're not already, they're soon going to be the largest demographic part of our population you know, connecting this to fake news, politics, we need to focus on media literacy, not only for students who are in our K-12 schools and our colleges and universities, but we need to focus on media literacy for senior citizens. So I think one of the things, ed- education, hey, education is an answer. So uh, we were talking today with uh, our service learning director about the possibilities of doing some kind of outreach about media literacy um, perhaps with seniors, we've already been doing some volunteer activities through service learning with some of our local retirement communities. And so that might be something that we explore in the year to come and engaging students in, you know, some dialogue and then talking about some of these issues because who is sharing a lot of these articles, who is being preyed upon security-wise by folks who are you know, putting sirens and scary messages and, and all kinds of things, you know, seniors are falling prey to a lot of this kind of stuff. So perhaps education is part of the answer that we need to pursue. What shall we Close the week out with for geeks of the week, Jason. Do you want well, I've
1: got a quick one. Um, I started listening to a podcast last week. Uh, it's called Against the Rules, and it's from Michael Lewis. And you probably know him. He's written a number of great books, including uh, Moneyball was one of the the books that he he wrote, and um, The Big Short is the other book that he he recently wrote. That's turned into a movie. But he's doing a podcast now, and it's called Against the Rules, Michael Lewis. And, um, I had a feeling I, this has been on my list for a while. I think it's the, the podcast has been out since, uh, since March, but the episode that I started with was extraordinary. It's called the seven minute rule. It's about student loans and kind of our, um, uh, obsession in the United States with, uh, uh, going to college and and trying higher education has led to this culture of people that have student loans and then some of the interesting things that have happened to the industry recently. So very investigative and a wonderful listen. Uh, uh, I believe it's, it's a premier podcast and I'm assuming you'd find it anywhere. uh, Well, you'd find the ethics situation. So
0: there you go. And I actually just subscribed in Pocket Cast, so that is awesome. Um, my connections, <laughs> coincidentally enough, uh, or my geeks of the week are connected also to podcasts. First of all, there's a mystery. I'd love anybody who can test this on your Google home device. I can't get my Google home to play our, our podcast anymore. I have no idea. I've been in contact with, uh, Google support, which is at now Google Nest. And, uh, yeah, let me know, Jason, if you can play it. I, I can't get it to recognize it. It'll say not, not available, uh, anymore. And I've been playing it for months. So I do listen to some other shows besides besides ours, but sometimes I will, will re-listen to them. But I also have a recommendation for a new podcast that I just recently found. Uh, the episode I started with is called Controlling Killer Robots. It's an interview with a professor, uh, Denise Garcia. And the podcast is by a librarian, Dan Cohen, and it is fantastic. The podcast is called uh, the What's New Podcast. And one of the, the things they recommended is my Geek of the Week uh, video recommendation, which is a 2017 eight-minute YouTube video called Slaughterbots. And so if you were thinking that killer robots are just something in science fiction, something in the Terminator, something that we just don't even need to be worried about, think again. Because the speed, the velocity that technology, artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithms are moving uh, necessitate us much in the same way that we have um, we have international treaties against the use of chemical weapons, and yes, we do have laws that are supposed to govern you know the ways in which armed conflict happens. Uh there's really good reasons for that. You know, unfortunately we can't talk to a lot of World War One veterans anymore. You can go to the World War One veter uh, museum in Kansas City and hear a lot of amazing, you know, oral history interviews with folks who survived. And and that was probably where I think the most people exper- experience poison gas. But anyway, um having a robot with the final say on whether to pull the trigger and kill a human being is what she describes as really, you know, the big, the big tipping point there. And so she has been a part of a movement in the United Nations among other, among, you know, countries across the world to try to address this and kill a robot. So geek of the week, check it out. Jason, what is this whole thing about though? And will we ever get together again? If Google hangout can, you know, the, the, uh, overlords of Google, you know, smile upon us again.
1: Sure. Well, this thing is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast where Wes and I, and sometimes an occasional guest, talk through the week's news. Uh, we're available on Apple Podcasts. We're available on Stitcher Radio. We're available on the Pocket Cast Library and whatever or wherever uh, finer podcasts are aggregated. But more importantly, if you don't want to do that and just want to listen to the most recent episode, you can go to our website etechsr.com, where you will also find every week show notes and every link we refer to in the show. We're also available on edtech sr on Twitter, where we usually announce when we're going live. Uh, sometimes we have to do it twice. If YouTube is not participating uh, 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 with our mission that night, but you can always find the latest information there. That's enough about us. What about you, Wes?
0: I am W Fryer on Twitter. My blog, speedofcreativity.org, has been seeing a few new posts, and will continue to see a bigger uptick in post or uh, post frequency as I make my transition and pivot here in the next 32 days, I think.
1: And I am a Tech Savvy Teach. I blog at the Northwest Council for Computer Education Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org. And if you want to find out more about my day work, uh, you can go to Montanadigitalacademy.org, which is the state virtual school of which I am a lucky staff member. So for the EdTech SR team, I think, Wes, you actually started us off, so why don't you sign us off?
0: All right. Until next time, we encourage everybody to stay savvy and stay safe and stay tuned because we may have a guest joining us next week. There will be some summer travel in the mix, and we will keep everybody updated on Twitter.